The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. In Mark chapter 8, we find Jesus in this moment in his life where he has just um, fed 4,000 people. He has just miraculously fed 4,000, now 4,000 men, again, that's again, the, the Bible's way of saying 4,000 men, and so there's probably almost certainly more people than that, maybe three times as many, so upwards of twelve to 16,000 people that he would have um, fed miraculously in this moment. And then we pick up here in verse 11, and I'm going to read until verse 21, because I want us to capture one, the, the weight of one phrase of what Jesus says in this moment in his life that I think will begin to help us understand what's going on in Daniel chapter 11. So Jesus has just performed this moment of... Sorry, Jen, could you help me out here just a little bit? Um, The Pharisees came and began to argue with Jesus, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. This is Jesus. And he sighed deeply in his spirit. So this is Jesus just responding to the... They've just, he's just performed a miracle. And the Pharisees are going to come up and they are going to put him to the test. And Jesus is just like, the sigh, this deep sigh is just Jesus' frustration. You almost feel it. Like, they're putting him to the test. Like, all right, Jesus, perform another miracle for us. It's like, bro, I just, I, I just put socialism to the, to the bank. Like, I, this is like the best socialism you've ever had. Free food, right? Sorry, that's a political joke. Some people don't get it. Drew doesn't think it's funny at all. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat, and went to the side. Now, here's the part I want us to pay attention to. Now, they had forgotten to bring the bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And here's the phrase, And the leaven of Herod. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the leaven of Herod. And they began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread, right? They missed the entire point. And Jesus was and said to them, why are you discussing the fact that they have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Our hearts, are your hearts hardened? Having eyes to see, do not see. Having ears to hear, do not hear. And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves of the 5,000 and how the baskets were full of pieces for you to take up? And they said 12, right? And then he did it again. And seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? That phrase, beware of the leaven of Herod, is critical for helping us understand what's going on in Daniel 11. Here's why. We often think of, ah, we need to be really, really, really careful about legalism and religiosity and like just doing things for the religious reasons, for the wrong reasons. We were really careful about that. But here, um, Jesus picks up on this reality that when power plays are going down, there is a leaven of Herod, a leaven of the political, cultural dynamics around us. There is a leaven of Babylon, you might call it, because Herod was just a figurehead for all of what represented what was opposed to God. Jesus is picking up on that and saying, pay attention that those elements, that dynamic of how the world around you operates, be careful that it doesn't get 
kneaded into you like yeast into a bread and begins to malform your soul. So Daniel 11, when we come to Daniel 11, what's going down in Daniel 11 is Daniel 11 is playing out bit by bit, piece by piece, all of these wars and rumors of wars and everything over about four centuries. And it is playing out in dramatic fashion what Jesus is talking about when he says what he means by the leaven of Herod. So Daniel 11 is here, not merely just to kind of give us a playbook of the ancient world, but it is a dramatic presentation to help us get drawn into this reality, right? The world is a dangerous, dark place, and that's not to mean the people outside the walls. That means we as well. We have all this darkness and evil that rises up within us. We too are a part of this world and is opposed to God, and that in our lives together, it can get very discouraging to live our life with God and figure out where does our courage for just another day with Jesus come from, right? Because we begin to see, oh gosh, I just... Yet again, I am ensnared by my own darkness that I, bring into the, that I bring into this day. Daniel, again in Daniel 11, he is facing this reality. that They have been in Babylon for 70 years. They have been captive. They have been enslaved by Babylon for 70 years. He is an old, old guy, right? Super old, like probably like in his 80s old. If you're 80s and watching this, Congratulations, you have made it. Like, this is like, Daniel has watched many things go down. The Jews have just been given permission to go back into their promised land to figure out how they're going to make things, build, rebuild their temple, rebuild their culture. They face significant opposition, and the honeymoon's over, and everything falls apart. So then, as a culture, the Jewish people were severely discouraged, and they were trying to figure out, okay, how do we live as God's people? How do we have courage to live as God's people when it seems like everything is against us? We fight amongst ourselves. The world fights against us. All of these kings, they rise and fall. They come against us. How do we live this life? So in the midst of all that, Daniel 10, remember, angel shows up. This is now a vision that, Dan that Daniel receives to help him figure out where does courage come from, right? Courage is just energy to face difficulty ahead of us, right? So here's the main point, and we're gonna, I'll make a few comments, and then we're gonna kind of begin to dissect this passage. Cool? Everybody on, on board? All right. God calls the shots so you can have courage for the, when the world's against you. Not super complicated. God calls the shots so you can have courage when the world is against you. So what we're gonna see in this chapter is we're gonna see two kingdoms in play. We're going to see God's kingdom and how that rises and kind of ebbs within the, this other kingdom, the kingdom of the world or the kingdom of man. Now, if you're familiar with political theory, I am not making a case for two kingdoms theology. That's not entirely what I'm talking about at all. What we're talking about is what St. Augustine would talk about where you have the kingdom of man and within that you have the kingdom of God. Right here, we have within Daniel 11 all of these like uh, all this newsreel. Like, have you ever you know watched CNN or Fox or whatever? They've got that newsreel of things going on in the bottom. Like, this just feels like an unending newsreel of, by the way, so and so king. Uh, uh, no, there was a coup, and now his daughter's getting married. No, 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 no. And that, you know, there's just updated, updated, updated news. That's how Daniel 11 feels. Amidst all of that, the main event on the main screen is what God's doing in His people. So. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to break down the chapter real quick, and then we're going to look at what the kingdom of man has to say to us. We're going to look at what the kingdom of God has to feed for us. All right, is that cool? All right, so here's the main overview of this chapter. Uh, 
verses 5 to 35. Again, Drew did an excellent job of reading this for us. I'm just going to give you the overview. There's two kingdoms, kingdom of the north and the kingdom of the south. You probably picked up on this, and they're fighting it out. There, um, you have the, the kingdom of the, the Ptolemies, or Egypt, and the Seleucids, Syria and Babylon, kingdom of the north and the kingdom of the south. And in verse 5 is where kind of the, the predictive element of all of this picks up. Now, the thing to keep in mind is that from verse 5 to 35, the events that we read through earlier are so specific and so accurate that several commentators on the book of Daniel will say this was written after the event. They were, so Daniel happens around like what, the 5th century before, so five, about 500 years before Christ. These things are so specific for those intervening like three or 400 years between there that commentators will say this had to have been written like about 100 years before Jesus was born or 200 years before Jesus was born because it's so specific. But I don't think that that's true. I think this is actually written ahead of time. It is predictive prophecy of what's going to happen. It reveals the events of what are going to happen in the second and third centuries following Daniel. But it is written as a vision in the future to show that God is Lord over the history. He Lord over history, and He calls a shot. So we're not going to go down and bore down into each like verse, you know, whatever, and then tie it to whatever historical event. You can do that on your own. What we're going to do is we're going to draw in on verse six to eight, just to show one specific instance of how this how this plays out. You have here in verse six to eight. You, well kind of backing up, you have 13 of the 16 rulers of these two kingdoms from 322 to 163 BC uh, in verses 5 to 20, and the conflicts that relate to them. Now, in verse 6 to 8, let me read that for us. Daniel 11, verse 6 to 8, if I can get my Bible open correctly. There's Daniel 11. After some years, they shall make an alliance And the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure. Right? So this is the king of the north. She shall be given up and her attendants, and he who fathered her, and he who supported her in those times. And from a branch from the from her roots shall one shall arise in his place. He shall come against the army, and enter the fortress of the king of the north. And he shall deal with them and shall prevail. He shall also carry off to Egypt their gods and their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold. And for some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. Okay, let's pause there. Ian Duguid, he uh, was my. Old Testament professor, one of my Old Testament professors, he wrote a commentary in the book of Daniel. Uh, I'm not sure, do we have the quote in there, or is it just, we do? Okay, there we go. He, he, he writes his name Ian. This is the way the Scots write their names for Ian. That's the way my son Ian's not named after him, but that's where we get to pronounce him from. Anyhow, Ian Good, Duguid writes, these predictions were fulfilled to the letter. Around 250 B.C., but Ptolemy II, the king of the south, attempted to make peace with Antiochus II, king of the north, by sending his daughter Berenice to marry him. The plan is that Antiochus would divorce his first wife, Ladosi. Um, I'm not sure, how do you pronounce that, Peter? Mrs. L. 
and disinherit her son. Sorry, I should I, I, pra- I practiced ahead of time. Um, Laodice discovered the plot, however, and she had Antiochus and Berenice poisoned. Man, that's a grudge. Let's talk about Jerry Seinfeld right there, right? Along with her young son, yikes. In the same year, Berenice's father died, right? Remember, this is what the, the um, you'll see this. Um, he who fathered her, verse 6, and who supported they all basically, they die in verse 6. Um, verse, she di- he, um, he died in Egypt. He was succeeded by Berenice's brother, quote, someone from her own family, right? Again, verse 7, who, was, who then invaded Seleucid kingdom and conquered its capital, Antioch, exactly as Daniel 11 predicted. So, again, I know that, like, we're kind of like unfamiliar with ancient names and terms and places, but effectively, Daniel 11 is a very kind of... Um, evocative reading of actual history and how it actually goes down. And so when you lay it right next to each other, you're like, good grief, this has to have been like written after the fact. No, in fact, it was written ahead of time because God calls the shots. But again, nations are driven by power and greed and built on one man's will versus another and not God's will, and they inevitably crumble, right? Have you heard anything about the Seleucids lately? Right? They are not on the... Not on the stage. They didn't have a third-party candidate in this last election, did they? Um, then here, let's pick up in verse 21 to 35. There is a focus. Uh, the, the focus kind of comes in again on, a t- on one ruler who we know to be Antiochus IV. Antiochus Epiphanes, remember from, we talked about him in chapter 8 of, of Daniel, right? He, if you remember, was the one who would later... Um, desecrate the Jerusalem temple. He would sacrifice a pig in there. He would outlaw circumcision. He would make it um, illegal for Jews to gather. He would try to indoctrinate Jews with Jewish cu- or with Greek customs. Um, so he is the one who comes out against God's people. So here we have an eleven uh, uh, chapter eleven, verse twenty-nine to thirty. At that time, at the time appointed, he shall return and come to the south. But he shall not be uh, this time as it was before, for ships of Kittim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the holy covenant, right? When you see that phrase, that means that he's going against God's people, going against Jerusalem. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the holy covenant. So we read about how this moment in his in Antiochus Epiphany's life where he tries to attack uh, attack Egypt, is turned away, and he and the way he kind of like deals with that breakup as he goes after Jerusalem. So again, here we have in verse 30, um, he shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsook the holy covenant. Forces from him shall appear, verse 31, and profane the temple and fortress. Again, that's the pig sacrifice in the temple, etc. And shall take away the regular burnt offerings, right, where he made it illegal for the sacrificial system in the Jewish culture. And they shall set up the abomination that takes that makes desolate. Okay, God's people are told about this several hundred years and ahead of time to strengthen them to persevere, to give them courage for the days ahead. Though they would be uh, severely fought against, that they would be faithful amidst all that was about to go down. So we're not going to go through then the rest of all of this, but here I'm just going to make a quick comment on verse 36 to 45, and we're going to kind of begin to break this down a little bit further. Verse 36 to 45, um, you have here, verse 36, and the king shall do as he wills. Most commentators agree that this then 
goes from shifting from talking about the king of the north and the king of the south to being the king, a future king, right? It, this then goes from being merely like, uh, you might call it like local prediction to future prediction. So verse 36 relates to the king who is the, the big king because we have here in verse 40, right? The king of the south and the north show up again. So he's a different king from those guys. This all relates to the future and probably relates to something along the lines of the big antichrist or antichrists, people who show up and are opposed to God, show up and oppose God's people and his purposes, and they wage war in the future from what Daniel's referring to here in the first few centuries before Jesus as being opposed to God's people. We will look at some of this more in chapter 12 later, next Sunday, but just to say this is looking forward in future events. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to swing back around to Mark 8, and we're going to begin to ask, what does this chapter help us do in our life with Jesus? If you want more commentary on these verses, I honestly, like, check out your ESV study Bible. Um, those notes are great. Um, Ian Duguid's commentary is fantastic. It's accessible. If you want the chapter, just email me, and I will email it to you. Um, I'm not sure if it's legal for me to not, but... I like you guys, so we'll just email it to you if you want more details. So, because here's the deal. We, we look at this chapter, and there's a lot going on. And we have to remember, in the ancient world, can you imagine, you have to remember how expensive and costly it was to write Scripture. Right? They had to go and kill a big old animal, skin it, treat its skin that took weeks to treat it in a certain way, get ink of a certain kind, and then meticulously, they had, a, they had a whole system where they would write out word by word, by word, letter by letter, where they knew exactly how many words fit on one sheet of Scripture and how many lines. And if it was off by anything, they would burn it and start over, right? So it would take weeks and weeks and weeks and months. So if you have a whole chapter here related to all of these events, it is showing God's intention that this is important for us to pay attention to. There is events going on here that... We're not getting into church and all that stuff, but that drives us into what I think Jesus is showing us when he says in Mark 8, right? Be, watch out, beware of the leaven of Herod. Because here we have in Daniel 11, this dramatic presentation of all the powers of this world going after each other and just gnawing at each other and drawing out everything that they can. They are going after it. They're going for the jaguar to maintain their own kingdom apart from God. And I think... When we look at the kingdom of man, we see three things about the people of the kingdom of man, right? And this includes us as well to the extent that we are influenced by the kingdom of this world. Verse 10 to 13, we see that they are people who love power. Verse 23 to 24, they are people who love lies. And verse 37, they are people who love themselves. Let me just break that down for us for a moment. Verses 10 to 13, here we have... Daniel 11, 10 to 13. You'll see this, and I want you to pay attention to these key words here. Right? And just notice all the, just the action words and the kind of war-type languages going on. His son shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through and again shall carry the war as far as his fortress. Then the king of the south, moved with rage, shall come out and fight against the king of the north. And he shall raise a great multitude, and he shall 
be given into his hand. And when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted, and he shall cast down tens of thousands, and he shall not, but he shall not prevail. For the king of the north shall again raise a multitude greater than the first, and after some years he shall come on with a great army and abundant supplies. You get the sense when you read that section that the kingdom of this world is unrelenting in its lust for power. It will go at all. It will go all out to maintain, to win, to fight. It must give everything. It loves power, and it is unrelenting. We feel this, don't we? When we just see the world around us, maybe it's somebody in your family, maybe it's whatever the political situation you find yourself in. You just think, do these guys ever give up? Like, do they ever sleep? Like, I don't know if you remember. Like, to me, it's always just kind of like the general comment that, like, in the, like uh, in the church world, I just to me, when somebody is just totally crazy heretical, I don't know how they sleep because they seem to produce like ten thousand books a year, and I'm just like, I'm just trying to write one book to write. I'm just trying to write a few sermons to love Jesus. How do you have time to write this ridiculous nonsense that is just so crazy? I don't know where they find it, but they are unrelenting. It's a love of power. It is a commitment to absolutely dominate. Verse 23 to 24. And from that time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, and he shall come become strong with a small people. Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province, and he shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers had done, scattering among them plunder, spoiling goods. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. Right here within this, we see just a small window into this reality that the kingdom of this world, it is always half-hearted with the truth, right? You see this even in the beginning in the Garden of Eden, right? When Satan comes to tempt Adam and Eve, what does he say, right? It's not just that God hadn't said, God had said, look, don't eat of the fruit. But he starts adding to it. Well, did he say that you would surely die, like, right away? Did He surely didn't say you shouldn't just touch it and eat it. Like, he starts kind of twisting the truth. The world around us is constantly spinning the narrative, right? It is when the truth cannot have the full light of day, right? Whenever you begin to kind of see this, you're like, can, you, can we just not just spin the narrative? Can we just kind of lay out all the facts, that's what we try to do in our leadership and how we do our life together as a church because we just know people are so tired of getting the narrative spin. If you have something to lose with the narrative spin, the kingdom of this world will help, will, will guide you towards twisting the, tr- the truth and suppressing those parts that are less flattering. A free and open telling of the truth is never good for your ego's best interest. And then verse 37 the kingdom of this world loves their loves the self loves themselves he shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers nor to the one beloved by women he shall not pay attention to any other god for he shall magnify himself above all isn't this what we we just like hey, can you just get over yourself like why is this always about you why did why does it always have to be i'm telling a story and you one up me with another story like why is this always about you right? We all feel this. We're always, always looking out for number one, right? And we see these three categories, like the love of power, the love of lies, and the love of self. We see, I mean, 
I am not going to get into yet another kind of illustration from politics, but let me just use a local example. All right, you guys are familiar with what's going on with the 10 cities here in, the, in, in Manchester. I'm not sure you pick up. Right, you've got the, the county courthouse. You've got its state property amidst city property. So you have people who have set up tents on either side, and they can't get, a, they can't get evicted because it's state property and not city property. And so this, the Manchester police can't re- evict those people from there. And there's all this finger pointing and who's to blame. Why can't you get rid of these people? And now we've got like this edict or you got till November 15th. So today to get out of there, it's just all like finger pointing and all that stuff. And it doesn't matter how many articles you read about it. It doesn't matter how many people you go there and talk to. It doesn't matter how many politicians or police officers you talk with. At the end of the day, the reason that a lot of that finger pointing and dehumanizing and just sadness are related to that whole situation, here, here are hundreds of people who are just, they're homeless trying to find a way to survive and there's finger pointing people getting blamed one way or the other it is the kingdom of this world constantly loving power unable to tell the truth and always exalting itself one of those three all three of those mixed into just these this gross political situations where you're like people's lives are on the line here and i'm not telling you one way or the other how to think about that situation but i'm just saying when we get to those situations in our city or in our lives as a family or in our lives as a church, and it's just kind of like there's just something gross and you just can't quite put your finger on it, it's probably one of these categories that this, there is a life being lived out of the kingdom of this world that just is like, ugh, this is gross. Because the kingdom of man will always, always, always drag us into the darkness, drag us into denying God, drag us into an existence that is just constantly in turmoil. I mean, that's certainly what's going on in Daniel 11, right? So in contrast to that, we find amidst Daniel 11, here we're going to, this is where we're going to kind of spend the next, hopefully, more time <laughs> being uplifted because now we've kind of, we've spent all this time kind of evaluating the kingdom of this world and we're just kind of like, this is gross. I just want to get out of this. Well, God has us here as pilgrims, just like Daniel, amidst the kingdom of this world to build his own kingdom of light and goodness, redemption, hope, and help amidst all of this stuff. He has called his own people. He has sent us here. Whatever your zip code is, that's where God has sent you amidst the kingdom of this world to be a pilgrim with him, to have courage. He's calling the shots. And so when we look at the kingdom of God amidst all of this, we're going to kind of see here verses uh, 32 to 35-ish around there. And then kind of at the end of the chapter, we're going to see the kingdom of God in the kingdom, what the kingdom of God looks like. So, you guys, cool, we're looking forward to this. All right. The kingdom of God, pil- in the kingdom of God, pilgrims, they first, the first call for the kingdom of God is that pilgrims believe, right? You, you'll notice in the kingdom of man, there's always allegiance testing. Are you on my side or this side? In the kingdom of God, it is quite simply, verse 32 he shall seduce and f- with flattery those who violate the covenant. Here we go. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. But the people who know their God. The first thing the pilgrims are called to in our life with Jesus as a kingdom built by him in this world is that they know their God. Often I'm, I'm so struck when I see people who will leave the faith, who will deny Jesus, and it's often that 
it is often that they have not taken their Bible seriously to look and get to know their God for who he is on his own terms. They've heard rumors about who God is, what God's like. They've taken verses selectively out of context and said, see, look, this contradicts this over here. Christians have thought about the Bible for a super long time to understand who God is and what he's like. And I'll tell you what, if your God always agrees with you, then you do not believe in the one true God. The one true God of the Bible will always and inevitably make you feel uncomfortable because you must get to know him above getting to know merely yourself. If you're trying to figure out where to find your place in the Bible, I'm telling you, Jesus Storybook Bible, we've said this before, that book is fantastic. The book is just, it, it draws out this reality that this whole Bible is about Jesus himself and getting to know him. Did you pick that up? In verse 32, it says, it doesn't just say that they will just kind of know about their God, right? They'll know some things about him. I think that he saved us from Egypt one time, didn't he? It says in verse 32, that they shall know their God. They shall know him. They shall enjoy him. They shall experience him and know who he is. So you have verse 30, uh, Psalm 34, verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Right? This God is not merely just known about. He is enjoyed and experienced. Taste and see that the Lord is good, right? You don't, I'm sorry, vegans, I go always go to steak. You don't look at a steak and say, that steak looks great, leave it on the plate. <laughs> you look at that steak and you say, cut it up, right? When we look at God in the Bible, it is not merely just to say, I wish that was true. The Bible invites us into experiencing God himself and saying, he is good to know. You have chapters, uh, Psalm 37, Verse 4, this one thing I ask of the Lord that I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, and what? No good things about God? No, the verse ends, gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. God is good to be known. He is always and ever soul-refreshing to see and enjoy, Right? We see some people walking down the street and we walk to the other side because just don't got time for that. Don't want to get involved with that, whatever. God is not like that. When you see him, you always want to walk right up to him and get to know him more deeply. And we do that by looking at him in the Bible. We see him and enjoy him and we want him. That is what God is doing for us in the Bible. So when Daniel 11 says that they know their God, that is what it is talking about. They do not merely, you do not merely know about him, but you enjoy him for who he is. So, verse 32, again, they don't merely, pilgrims not only know their God, they don't, don't merely just believe him, but they resist, right? Here we're, we're using some evocative language here. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. The people who know their God shall do something with it. It's not merely just kind of like, I'm glad I have this holy prayer time with Jesus, and then I just go along with the world. When we talk about the word resist. We have so many examples from this year that we could pick. People resisting one way or the other politically across the... We have people doing marches on both sides, right? And I'm not, I'm not lumping anybody in with the evil folks or whatever. I'm just saying people are saying when they are doing a march one way or the other, this is not right. 
I'm resisting it. The Bible is calling us to say, I know who God is, and I know how he's made the world to function, and this kingdom of this world is, has a gravity to pull me away from God's designs, and I want him. God, help me enjoy your designs. So you have here 1 John chapter 2. You remember this. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, Maybe that sounds very similar to the love of self, love of power, love of lies. It is not from the Father, but it is from the world. And the world is passing away with its desires. Whatever does the will of God abides forever. See, it's not saying that all of your desires in life are inherently sinful, wicked, and wrong. What it is saying is that when you root those desires in the world's design, you will always inherit decay and death. But when you root those desires and who God is, you inherently have to resist the gravity of the world around you. And you have to enjoy the good things as God has designed them to experience, right? When we root them in God, we experience the good things of God's world on his terms, right? The matrix is the best illustration of this, right? We are des- we, the world is kind of like trying to, to subject us to its own matrix fake world around us. And God regularly invites us into experiencing the world on his terms, but that requires that we resist. It means when we get our sexual ethics, we recognize the world's trying to do one thing over here, God's calling us to a different sexual ethic. When we think about how we live our lives at work, the world is going to draw us into loving power, lies, and self. How can you make it all the way to the top, ruthless, my work ethic will look different. I will be a different type of pilgrim in this world, but I have to resist, which means I have to acknowledge the gravity and go towards God's designs. 33, this is this may be going to feel a little bit redundant to what we're doing right now. Verse 33, and the wise among the people shall make many understand, right? Though many of some of those shall stumble by sword and famine, by captivity and plunder, right? This certainly is what I'm doing right now, right? We're teaching the Bible. <laughs> how do we understand what the Bible means and says, and how does it change our lives, right? Pilgrims want the Bible to be taught. This is not the only, what we're doing right here in this little square right here, this is not the only way to do Bible teaching. You can do Sunday school, you can do small groups, you can do one-on-one Bible teaching, but it looks at the book and says, what does it mean for my life? on the book's terms, right? What does the Bible mean on its own terms? I am always absolutely uninterested in how hearing just kind of like, here's what I, just kind of flowery interpretation of my life and how it inter- and relates to the Bible. I care about that because I care about people, but when I'm trying to understand what it means to be a disciple, I want to understand what the book says. We need to understand the book is here to help us understand who God is and what it means to live a life with him, which requires that we teach each other, right? If you've been a Christian for five minutes, you should be learning how to understand the Bible. If you've been a Christian for 50 years, you're probably on the other side of, how should I help other people understand the Bible, right? You've been around a few, you've, you've kicked the tires a few times, you understand how it goes. This is why, for example, our, MC, our missional communities, our small groups are so integral, like the, li- the, the lifeblood of our church. The bread and butter of our church is Sunday morning worship, 
and small groups through the week. That's how we learn to teach the Bible to each other. I'll tell you what, our small group, we are constantly kind of riffing. Uh, when it's not me ranting about whatever, you know, pumpkin pie or something like that. When it's, me, when it's not me taking over the conversation and dominating with my ridiculous opinions that are absolutely correct, right? But when it's, when it's us understanding what the book means, we, we unfold not merely the book of what God's saying to us, but our lives and how they integrate with each other. It takes time. It takes effort. It takes commitment. But we teach to learn and grow together. That's what pilgrims do. Because if you're teaching, if you aren't teaching, you're being taught by something else. If you're not being taught by, by each other through the scriptures, the world is teaching you another way to think. We're going to pick up here the fourth thing that Christians, that pilgrims do along the way is they recover. Maybe this is a little bit shocking in this list, but this is what makes us a gospel community and not merely a religious community. Verse 33. Uh, 34 and 35. This is the pilgrims. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help, and many shall uh, join themselves to them with flattery, and some of the wise shall stumble. Right? Even, you might say, the ones who are pastors among them shall stumble, so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. What he's saying here is basically pilgrims along the way will stumble one way or the other. Different, different, you know, people who are mature that you look up to, people that are beside you and along your way. Believers will stumble. But the point of the stumbling isn't to say, look at how dumb their God is. That's not the point of the stumbling. The stumbling is actually under God's control and is designed, verse 35, that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end comes. Right? Our stumbling is even factored into God's care for us. It is our, our faltering is even in God's designs for our lives so that we are refined and we recover in Jesus together. So let me just read Galatians 6 for you. This is verse 1 through 10. These are constantly faithful verses for our life together. Brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, restore them in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, then when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But each one, when he is, when uh, test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Again, here, verse 6. Let the one who is taught the words... Um, let the one who is taught the word show all good things, share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For one who sows it to his own flesh, from his own flesh shall reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit, from the Spirit shall reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary in doing good. For in due season we shall reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity... Let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. The reason I read this long list here, this long, these ten verses, is that within it you almost hear an echo of these five categories that we're talking about, right? Believe in who God has made you to be in Jesus. Uh, help each other recover, right? If somebody stumbles, help them be lifted up. 
you, you see him talking about teaching and teach to each other and, re, and share those with those who are teaching you. And then resist the works of the devil and resist the flesh and his desires. There is within uh, this life, I, I'm, I'm convinced that the prophetic literature, specifically like Daniel and these books, are undervalued in how they kind of echo throughout the life of Jesus and the epistles. Because certainly that was in Paul's mind. Daniel, in some way or fashion, was in Paul's mind when he was writing Galatians. Realize in 2020, we are a community of broken people finding forgiveness, healing, and wholeness in Jesus Christ alone. The kingdom of man constantly requires penance and atonement. That's why if you talk to any people, commentators today talking about cancel culture and all this stuff, if we find out that you did something or said something ridiculous 20 years ago, we're going to cancel you today. That type of stuff. It's just constantly going on. I'm not sure how big a deal it is in terms of like how prevailing it is, but I, I think you kind of know what I'm talking about. The world will constantly demand penance and atonement. The church should be, and I think is a place for recovery because our atonement is perfect in Christ. Our welcome is exuberant in the Father, and we are empowered by the Spirit with unending fulfillment. See, we, we recover together because we are a broken people. I need the help recovering from my sin. You guys need your help in recovering from your sin. We do this together because we love Jesus together. We do this because we're pilgrims who are on the way. Here we're end with verse 45, and we'll end with this. Verse 45, the very end of the vision, and he shall pitch his... Uh, palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain, yet he shall come to his end, and none shall help him. This is a vision of that final battle, whatever it is. And here we have it stated negatively. What Revelation says positively, Jesus wins. The life of a pilgrim is filled with the hope of knowing, look, I don't know what things look like tomorrow. It may get better. It may get worse. I don't know what's going down and who's going to do the election stuff and work stuff and how am I going to provide for all these things. I don't know. Those things are very hard and they're difficult and they're, they feel like the world is against you. Whatever they are, we know that Jesus is the one calling the shots and that we can have hope that it's going to work out for his goodness and glory doesn't mean that it's always on our time and how we want it to be, but it feels very similar to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he ends the, the Sermon on the Mount by talking about how blessed are those who are pure in heart, actually in the middle part, for they shall see God. This is the kingdom that resides within us. We reside within this kingdom that is filled with believing and knowing who God is. We reside in this kingdom. We resist knowing because God is with us. We reside in this kingdom that teach each other to walk, to walk in the ways of God together. And we reside in this kingdom that recovers from our sin and our brokenness together. We reside in this kingdom that hopes in the goodness of God together. Because amidst all the world and what's going on around us, God, God's calling the shots of all this stuff. It's, he's, not, he's not surprised. He's not anxious or waiting for the latest updates. Courage comes from living with a God who rules over all people. And he's with us. 
God is with you where you are right now. Goffstown, New Boston, Manchester, even if you happen to live in Derry. God is with you. He has sent you where you are, and he is building the kingdom of God to a man. Have courage. God's not forgotten you. He is with you, and he is with you. Let's pray. Father, as we look at this chapter together and we consider that this is a long chapter with a lot of events, but we see amidst a God who is near us, among us, and delights in us. And so we pray, Father, as we have looked at this together, that we would love you, that we would enjoy that you're the one calling the shots. You are the one who is driving. You're in charge. So we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.